0: We uh, we started this year, um, started this year by engaging in a series of talks on principles or practices or postures that lead us toward genuine life in Christ, like real life in Jesus. Ancient paths that lead to new life in Christ. And when we talk about new life, when I when I use that phrase, we're talking about things like joy. We're talking about things like contentment. We're talking about things like meaning or, or a sense of purpose in our life. We're talking about having a deep sense of hope. And so what we've, been, what we've been doing is talking about these practices that lead us to those things. Listening was the first one. We delivered that one online. We've talked about beauty and rest and truth interdependence, community. Last week, Bo talked about resilience. I needed to hear like how resilience leads me back into this place of intimacy with Jesus. And and this week, I'm going to dive into one that's going to require something from you. It's going to require that you do some counterintuitive thinking to actually walk this pathway. Because even when I say what this pathway is, when the words leave my mouth, I have a feeling there's going to be some resistance inside of you that rises up. Because it's not a word that most of us lean into. We don't want to lean into this word. And there's a reason. And, and the reason that we don't like this word is that we think that this word will actually undermine our happiness. And our culture, we take, we take happiness pretty seriously. Like we live in a country that was founded on the pursuit of happiness. So when you mess with happiness, you mess with people, right? So so today, we're going to talk about the way of sacrifice. And there probably isn't a more contradictory concept to our understanding of how we become happier than the idea of personal sacrifice. So so before we get too deep into the conversation around sacrifice, let me first just stop, and I want to talk about happiness for a moment. And, And here's the question that I want you to just ponder. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to give you some space to just try to answer this in your own mind. But what is happiness? What is it? How do you answer it? What is happiness? It's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Given enough time, I think we would all agree on certain conclusions. We all know that happiness is not an object, we all know that happiness is not a place. We know that happiness probably isn't monetary in nature. You can't buy happiness, right? We know that happiness isn't even a person. And we might chase all those things. We might chase relationships and objects and places and money to try to discover happiness. We we sometimes substitute those things for happiness. But all of us in the room, we are all smart enough to know that none of those things equal happiness. That is not the definition of happiness. A few weeks ago, somebody asked me a really tough question. They said, are you happy? (laughs) And uh, I said, I think so. And that hung with me for a while. I think so. Are you happy? And I said, I think so. If I'm happy, shouldn't I know it? (laughs) And if I'm happy and I know it, shouldn't I clap my hands? I mean, come on, somebody, right? Right? Happiness is really hard to pin down. Happiness is is elusive, and happiness is something that we feel. It's hard to describe with words. You know it when you're there, and you know it when you're not. And happiness is something that we pursue. We chase it. There isn't one person in this room right now who doesn't want to be happy. I know some of you, you're crossing your arms right now, I like being sad. Like, you love being Eeyore, but you really don't. That's just a hard shell you've put up. We all want to be happy, right? Nobody wants to be Debbie Downer, right? Sorry, Debbie's in the room, but. (laughs) So what is happiness? It's more than laughter, right? We know that. We know it's more than laughter. It's more than just a moment. I know plenty of people who laugh that aren't happy. Happiness. Is a state of being, isn't it? It's this condition that defines us for an extended period of time. And what is that condition? If you boil it down to its most basic meaning, happiness is this, and this is just my definition, of what I wrote happiness is when we experience more frequent positive emotions such as joy, peace, or confidence. And less frequent negative emotions such as sadness, anxiety, or anger. Are you with me on that? It, it doesn't mean that a person who is truly happy is never sad or never anxious or never angry. It simply means that in general terms, they're in a season where their experience of those kinds of moments is less frequent than their experience with positive emotions. There's more moments of joy. There's more moments of hope. There's more moments of meaning and laughter and and, and, and intentionality. That's happiness. And deep down, this is the deal. Because you're human, it's what we all want. We all want this. So here's another question I want you to... wrestle with and maybe I'm meddling a little bit this morning but last time I checked somebody paid me to be the guy that meddles in your life so and I also care about you I care about you I love you and so I'm gonna ask this question and I want you to wrestle with it are you happy are you happy Are your experiences of joy and peace and laughter and other positive emotions greater than your experience of anger, anxiety, or sadness? Are you happy? And let's just say this. Let's just say that maybe most of us in the room, we answer the question like I did a few weeks back, and we say, I think so. That answer would indicate that you probably could use a boost in your happiness, right? Like when you heard me say that, you probably thought, man, he needs to do some stuff to get a little happier, right? And I think the same for you, right? That you could answer that a little more clearly, that we could boost that on the scale of happiness? I mean, let's be honest. If I say, I think so, there's a high likelihood that I must be teetering someplace in the middle, right? Or, or I'm actually sad and I'm just too prideful or religious to admit it, right? Because Jesus doesn't ever let anybody be sad, right? So I'm just so religious that I'm not going to tell you I'm sad because that would give Jesus a bad name, right? Got to protect Jesus's reputation, right? So let's say we all could be a bit happier. Let's assume we all need to move up a couple ticks on the happiness graph, have a few more experiences of positive emotions. Anybody, raise your hand if you want to join me in getting a little happier. Oh, you guys are way better than that. The 9 o'clock servers were grumpy gusses. They were just like, we're fine being sad. Like, my level of happiness is just great. Get done with the servers. We want to go to the brunch. Uh, 11 o'clock people were like, we already had brunch. We're here. <laughs> so let's get on with the pursuit of happiness. Which brings another question that I want you to consider. Given what we just said about happiness being a state of being and a particular kind of state of being, think about this. How do we increase our happiness? If I say, let's go, let's go do it. We all just raised our hand and said, we want more happiness. How do we do it? Do we get more objects? Do we acquire more stuff? Do we find a better place to be where it isn't quite as cloudy and maybe a little more sunny? Do we, do we find a different job? Do we accumulate more money? Is it something physical? Is there something sexual? Is there something romantic? Is there something chemical that I need to put in my body? We've already said those things aren't happiness, but could we formulate the right concoction of these things? Could we, could we get the right mixture? Could we order them all just right? And then we would be a little bit more happy. It's interesting because the moment those words come out of my mouth, I think the same thing you do, and that's that those things were never intended to do that. Those are fleeting. Those are fading. Those are fantasy. But for some reason, whether it's conscious or unconscious, whether it's the culture that I live in or the commercials I'm going to watch today while I watch the Super Bowl, when we want to be happier, that's where we go. At least those of us who aren't perfect, that's where we tend to go. We know it doesn't sound right, but it's just what we do. And almost, almost no one, when they say, I want to increase my happiness, I don't know anybody that goes, man, if my happiness is low, you know what I need to do? Personal sacrifice. <laughs> Said no one ever, right? Like, we don't say that, and yet that is central to the way of Jesus. Listen to these words. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the, 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 the church in Corinth, the second letter that he wrote to him. And he's writing about the anchoring principle of Christianity. Like, this is it. And he says this, chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, like this is our conclusion. <laughs> this is what it all comes down to, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He, He's talking about how the love and the sacrifice of Jesus becomes the new operational principle for our lives. Like, you look to him, you see what he does, and now you take that pattern and you live it out. That is the operating system for the Christian life. And then you think about the key symbols of Christianity. I can think of a couple that are really crazy. The the baptism and the cross. They point to the idea of sacrifice, and they aren't just symbols. Baptism, the cross, they are the defining reality of how we actually live out this life in Jesus. They're as much a pattern or the architectural drawings as they are a symbol for us. It's actually showing us the way. So I want to talk about these for a moment, and I want to talk about baptism. Admittedly, um, baptism is a really unusual thing, really strange. I I love water. I live on a house that floats, that's how much I love water. I love lakes, I love pools, I love rivers, I love the ocean, I love water, I'm a water person. But there are two things that I hate as it relates to water. First one has nothing to do with this message, but I'm just gonna tell you so you never do it to me. I hate being splashed. Like, if you're a splasher, stop it, okay? None of us like it. If you've got kids that splash, tell them to knock it off, otherwise we're gonna hate your kids too, okay? Like, just don't splash. It's annoying, and I hate people splashing me. It's just a really annoying thing. So that's the first thing. It has nothing to do with this sermon. But the second thing I hate, and yes, I am fully aware that this is directly connected to an incident that happened when I was in junior high, and there was this girl named Erin who was six inches taller than all the boys in our class. She held me underwater so long that I prayed to God, if you let me up, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And that's how I got here, because this girl <laughs> dunked me forever, and I was pleading for my life. And so the other thing I hate is being dunked. Don't dunk people. They don't like that either. Don't splash, don't dunk. Those are my two rules, okay? Which brings us back to the oddity of baptism. Why in the world would somebody, like we have a baptismal tank in the stage, why would somebody willingly let another person shove them underwater? Like, under no other circumstances do we choose this, right? Nobody likes this. Which, by the way, we're doing baptisms on Easter Sunday this year. (laughs) So... If you want to be one of those people that's baptized this Easter, you can sign up at the Info Center or on our website. You can do that. But let me explain baptism a little further before you do. Because if you've ever wondered what it's all about, you're not alone. A lot of people go, what is is this thing? Why do we do this? And there's an event that it's tied to. There's a story. Story we call the Exodus. Book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. It ends with the story of Jacob going down to Egypt with his family. There's about 70 of them at that point in time small little clan, and they're the beginning of the nation of Israel. But when you turn to the first chapter of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, it tells us how that 70 members of Jacob's family had blossomed into a larger people group, but they were cruelly enslaved by the kings of Egypt. And so here they are as a people, oppressed for centuries until this guy Moses comes along which by the way Moses grew up in the home of Pharaoh he isn't he has an egyptian name even he's grown up in this home and suddenly god moves him to liberate these people and so in exodus chapter 12 Moses begins to lead them to freedom in the name of god and there's a series of plagues And there's this event called the Passover and then there's this moment where the people of Egypt they literally look at the people of Israel and they say get out of our land like leave we're done with you like you're making our life worse and so they free them they send them on their way but then shortly after this they change their mind because they realize they just lost all of their laborers so catch the imagery here they're enslaved and they want to escape And the moment that they're about to be freed, somebody comes after them to hold them in their slavery, to bring them back. Does this sound familiar in any way? You know you're enslaved. You know you can be free, but it just seems like someone or something is clawing at you to not let you go. So in Exodus chapter 14, they find themselves, they're pinned between the Red Sea and the army of the Pharaoh. If you've seen the the Disney movie Prince of Egypt, you probably know this already or if you grew up in church, maybe you know this already, I don't know, but Disney did make a movie about this, which was amazing. Um, the sea parted. And the people passed through, and when the Egyptians pursue, the sea closes on them, and everybody perishes. And that crossing, later on, they refer to as the baptism of Moses. So the water symbolized passing from slavery freedom. The water symbolized the rescue from a life of bondage to a life that is now liberated. The water, it symbolized the death of an old life and the birth of a new life. That's what it symbolized. So we shouldn't be surprised that when you go to the New Testament, we find John the Baptist, you can guess what he does for a living, down by the Jordan River and he's bringing people through the Jordan. Symbolically, he's reenacting the Exodus. Baptism is a picture of Exodus. He's he's ushering in this new age. People were tired of their bondage, their own personal bondage, but even the bondage to the Romans, like they were occupied, just like Egypt had owned the Israelites then, now Rome is owning them there. And and they're, they're in bondage to these people, and they're frustrated and angry, and they're tired of their slavery, both personal and public. And so he's ushering in, he's inviting people to return to God by returning to the imagery of the exodus. And the whole picture of entering into this new life was seen as a passing from death to life. Your old life is over, and your new life has begun. It means a sacrifice was being made. No one, not even John the Baptist, saw what was about to happen next, by the way. You you, you flip forward a few more pages... And you get to the crucifixion, our other symbol, our other pattern for living. The crucifixion always meant humiliation. It was the most humiliating form of execution that had ever been created. The crucifixion always meant you lost everything, everything. Your dignity and anything that went along with it. The crucifixion always, always ended in death until Jesus. For the first time, the crucifixion doesn't end in death. For the first time, the crucifixion ends in a resurrection, a new life, a different life. Jesus was buried, and then he was raised to new life. And suddenly, this symbol that people had been participating in for generations, it took on an entirely new meaning. Suddenly, they knew for years we'd been baptizing, we'd been using this imagery, and now we understand it was pointing to Jesus and this new life, this new thing that's found in him. And so, so after this, we, we, we read in the book of Acts, there's this road where Uh, leaving Jerusalem, where there's an an African individual who's asking questions about Jesus to a guy named Philip, and hearing the significance of what was happening in the Old Testament and Isaiah's words and being explained to him in language he finally understood, it makes so much sense that this this African individual says to Philip, he says, there's water by the roadside. Will you baptize me? Will you let me walk through this? And so we read in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 36, it says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And what is he saying? He's saying, I want to experience the exodus. I want to encounter the freedom that comes when I die and I'm raised to a new kind of life. He wants to enter into the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's choosing the sacrificial life. And his baptism is a symbolic statement of him entering into that life. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. You guys are getting way better than the nine o'clock service today. His baptism is a symbol of him entering into that life. I want you to catch this. When a person decides to become a Jesus person, when you decide, man, I want to be about Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be what we we sometimes reluctantly call a Christian these days because it means so many things, but when you say I'm going to be a Jesus person and I'm going to follow him, we don't give you a cross to wear around your neck when you walk out the door. we We don't do that. You don't get a bumper sticker for your car that says, this is who I am. In fact, I would prefer if you didn't put bumper stickers on your car because most of you are really horrible drivers and I don't want you giving Jesus a bad name. So (laughs) I just recently have come to realize that Oregonians drive too nice. It's too nice. Just stop being so nice and be aggressive when you drive. (laughs) When you decide to follow Jesus, there's no membership card. We don't take your picture and print a card for you. We don't do that. There isn't a contract you sign. There isn't a secret handshake. I promise, there isn't. If you wondered if there was, there's not. There's no test that you have to take and pass. None of that stuff. When a person decides to be a follower of Jesus, they take their physical body and they engage in a physical, symbolic act that says, do you see this person? Do you see me? Do you see who I am? I'm gonna die. I'm gonna let this person go by the wayside, and I'm gonna be a new person. I'm gonna be resurrected. There's a, there is a death, and that, they say that person has died, and it is no longer I who live. Following Jesus means you die. There is no other way to understand this, and and I believe this is fundamentally the most misunderstood aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, especially in our culture, because this kind of thinking is exactly the opposite. It is diametrically opposed to the way our culture thinks and operates. It is completely the opposite of the way we are wired to think, which explains why so many People fail to truly experience the spirituality of Jesus. It's counterintuitive. And yet it was Jesus who said this, Matthew 16, he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what does it mean to lose your life? What does that mean? It means every piece of who we define ourselves to be dies. And it's raised to new life. It changes. It's transformed. It's different. Like, think about your ambition. My ambition dies. Ambition for money, for fame, for power, it dies. My ambition t- to make Brad known, it all dies. And now I strive for things that will make Jesus famous. It means our goals die. Maybe your goal is to get that promotion or to retire comfortably, which, by the way, I still haven't seen that one quite yet, right? Or you want to leave a legacy of wealth. Maybe you said, you know, next year, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to do these things. But now, now on the other side of this death, it's to serve strategically and to live sacrificially, to leave a legacy of loving Jesus and loving people in his name. Maybe instead of of asking what can we gain in the next 18 months, it becomes what can we give and get rid of? Goals die, and they're resurrected to new life. Losing our life for the sake of Christ means we now live a life of sacrifice, which is so difficult because in 2022, there are so many things we can live our life for. So many things. You can be a good friend, a good spouse. You can be a good student. You can be a good educator. You can be a good business person. You you can live to get a good job. You can live to make more money. You can live to be comfortable. You can do all these things. And by the way, none of those things are inherently bad. None of them are bad, but when we look to Jesus in his life, we see that there is something larger, something more profound, something that is far more defining, that is above and beyond all of those things. Jesus' life led to the cross. He sacrificed, and he didn't do it for his own elevation or status. It wasn't like, you know what, I, I, this is a power move. I think I'm going to go get Sacrificed. Jesus didn't do that. He did the ultimate sacrifice. He was the ultimate servant for us. And that is what becomes the overarching principle or purpose of our life. That is the umbrella that covers all of those other things that we now live and breathe and do. For most of our culture, meaning is derived from the idea that I want my life to last beyond myself. I have to leave a legacy of some sort to make my life matter, but Dying to yourself means I'm freed from that. I don't have to worry about doing enough to matter or to be remembered. Losing our life for the sake of of Christ means our understanding even of wisdom and what makes sense in our world changes. In 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote to that church, he says that the world, to the world, the cross is foolishness. The cross is foolishness, not just like something people don't understand, like people look at the cross like, ah, that doesn't make sense, that whole Jesus thing. Like, that doesn't. No, it's foolishness. It means that they ridicule the cross. They literally look at the cross and say, this is, this doesn't make any sense, like it's, it's foolish. It doesn't, there, it's, it's backwards, it's upside down. That's how the world sees it, which means that the life of sacrifice will not make sense to a watching world. A life of sacrifice doesn't make sense to the world that we live. And they look at it and go, why in the world would you give of yourself, give of anything? Like, that's not the way it works. By the way, we could talk about how we get advice, how we make decisions, the way we approach others, everything. It doesn't matter what category it is. It all changes with this understanding. And all of those things that we lean on for ultimate direction and meaning, they shift. And by the way, it isn't easy There's a reason that we use the analogy or the reference to there being a death, right? I'm just going to say firsthand, like it's not even easy for me to preach this to you because I'm preaching to myself today and it feels like a death, right? When you serve instead of being served, when you give instead of receiving, when you quit making it about you, it isn't easy. It feels like a death. But the good news is, On the other side, there's a resurrection. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he said this in Romans 6. He said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, that we too would walk in newness of life. He's not talking about disembodied evacuation. He's not talking about the sweet by and by when everything is over here on earth. He's talking about right now, that right now we too, that in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, that we in the present tense in our life would walk in newness of life. Does it mean that things are going to be easy? No, that's not what he's saying. You still have to figure some things out, right? But we're different. We've been liberated from all the things that could hold us back or hold us down. And God has promised that he would do a new thing. And this is how he's going to do it. So let me, let me make this really clear. I want to be really clear about this. Sacrifice, personal sacrifice is not the end your life sacrifice is the doorway it's the beginning of new life it's where it starts when you decide to sacrifice your time or your energy your money your life when you give that away that is when you will be surprised by joy and you'll be surprised by hope and you're gonna be surprised by meaning and surprised by purpose in other words a life that's being shaped by sacrifice is a life that's characterized by the very things that our hearts are longing for we sacrifice and suddenly the joy and the hope and the meaning all those things that we were longing for they emerge you know when israel got on the other side of the red sea or when jesus stepped out of the tomb nobody nobody said oh it's all over this is the end They all knew this is just the beginning. Most of you know that um, I recently returned from a trip to Cambodia Nepal, a few other places. And I was struck with something really beautiful as it relates to this conversation about sacrifice. I was struck with something really challenging personally for me. And when I tell you I'm wrestling with this, I'm wrestling with this right now as much as you might be. But our friends that we visited in these places, they're living without many of the comforts and controls that we would integrate into our lives in order to generate further happiness. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we like to order these things. They live in some tough places. They live in some rough circumstances. Like, I always say this. As much as I like a good dirt road every now and then, I like that it's optional to drive on one, right? Like, having all dirt roads actually is really a polluted environment, and you don't really enjoy it that much. it turns out I like dependable electricity. Especially when it's 30 degrees out and you have a heater that keeps you warm. I just, I, anybody else with me on dependable electricity? Like that's a, a really nice thing to have, right? Or I, it turns out I like recognizable food. I'm pretty exploratory when it comes to my diet, but I like to know what I'm eating, right? I, I, predictable water sources. Again, something I really enjoy. And I could not help be but be faced with the reality that these friends of ours, they live in places that have required specific and intentional sacrifice. And yet there was a joy in them. There was a happiness. There was a sense of meaning and purpose that you could cut with a knife. It was so thick. And it was the best reminder that I could have received. It was crystal clear for me to see why they were so happy, why they were so joyful, why there was so much hope, why there was such meaning, because they're living sacrifice out. But I was also reminded of this. You don't have to move to the developing world to live a life of sacrifice. Turns out you can do that right here. So don't quit your job. Keep it. It's good for you and the people around you. You can live it right here. But it does mean that we need to wrestle with some questions. And so I'm going to throw them out there because this is what I'm wrestling with this week. This is what I asked myself this week. In what areas of my life am I courageously moving toward increased personal sacrifice for the sake of Jesus? Not just being content with the sacrifices I've made, the decisions I've made, and saying, well, that was good. I did that like 15 years ago. We're still kind of walking that out. Am I increasing personal sacrifice? Am I growing in sacrifice? Or am I resisting it? I'll be honest with you. Lately, I've been resisting it. And, and where are the places that I can lean in and let go of more? And, and, and one more, and I know this might be oversimplifying things a bit. But are you happy? Are you happy? Because if your answer is, I think so, then I think we've been shown a pathway to increase our happiness, and it means less of me and more of him. Amen? Would you stand with me? Each week, I offer a benediction, a prayer that I pray over you. Would you guys mind if I include myself in this one this week? Because I need a little bit of this one. You guys okay with that? So instead of me raising my hands, I'm going to leave mine out like this to receive it just as you do. May we be men and women who willingly and lovingly lean in to personal sacrifice. And may we discover the meaning, the hope, and the joy of a truly resurrected life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so, so much. Have an amazing day. I'm still not sure who's playing in this game today, but have a great time. Our kids' team is in the Commons if you want to talk about our day camp with them. We love you, and we'll see you guys next Sunday.